This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to Heritage Matters, a program brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust and sponsored by Ryman Healthcare. I'm Dougal Stevenson. In this program, we bring you part two of Bittersweet, interviews with laid-off Cadbury workers which have been voiced by professional actresses. But first, Anne Barraclough backgrounds the history of Cadbury's Dunedin factory. And in our final story, I look at a shipping disaster in Fovo Strait that should never have happened. A new Dunedin General Hospital will arise one day on the site of the closed Cadbury factory. The factory was a major employer for many years, and it was an important part of the Dunedin scene. Anne Barraclough has been looking at its history, and that of the local family who were once its co-owners. My former house in Tweed Street looked into the billiard room of a large imposing brick house known as the Hudson House. Another large Hudson House is two doors along, and I know of another two in Royal Terrace. Clearly the Hudson family was very well off when they acquired these magnificent houses. Richard Hudson, 1841-1903, to was born Daniel Richard Bullock. Orphaned at nine, he worked on the railway and learned the bakery trade in England. In 1865, he jumped ship at Littleton and joined the Polaris Gold Rush as a digger before working as a construction worker and bush feller. He and a Thomas Neeshaw were in partnership as bakers and storekeepers in Selwyn when he married Mary Ann Riley in Christchurch in 1868 and moved to Dunedin. In 1873, Hudson owned a large factory in Dowling Street making 30,000 biscuits an hour. In 1885, he travelled to England and bought a complete plant to make chocolate products, allegedly the first in the Southern Hemisphere. Richard Hudson died in 1903, by which time most of his sons were involved in the business. He lies with his wife in an unmarked grave in the Northern Cemetery. In England in 1824, a Quaker, John Cadbury, began selling tea, coffee and drinking chocolate in Birmingham, his brother Benjamin joining him in 1847, forming Cadbury Brothers. In 1854, they received a royal warrant from Queen Victoria, and in 1883, George developed a model village for company workers, the Bourneville Village, four miles from the Birmingham factory, to alleviate the evils of more crowded modern living conditions. In 1930, they amalgamated with R. Hudson & Co. of Dunedin, and New Zealand's first bar of dairy milk chocolate was produced. The large houses in Dunedin, owned by the Hudson family, were built or refurbished in the 1920s, 28 Tweed Street being built for Ambrose and Ruby Hudson, adjacent to an earlier large wooden villa they were living in, which was demolished to make space for the tennis court. In January 2010, it was announced that Kraft Foods would purchase Cadbury's for 18.9 billion United States dollars. There was widespread disapproval from the British over this, as it was feared 3,000 jobs would be lost. On the 1st of October 2012, Kraft Foods split into two companies, 
the confectionery business became Mondelez International, of which Cadbury became a subsidiary. In early 2014, Mondelez hired Accenture to implement a US $3 billion cost-cutting program of the company's assets. Beginning in 2015, a huge outcry occurred when Cadbury factories in Ireland, Canada, the US and New Zealand began to be closed in favour of shifting production to so-called advantaged countries like China, India, Brazil and Mexico, where wages were a lot cheaper. Shareholders approved the plan, including Westpac and the ASB banks. Various attempts were made to retain the Dunedin factory, including Cadbury World, and to relocate within New Zealand the production of iconic local brands such as Pineapple Lumps, Jaffas, Chocolate Fish, Buzz and Pinky Bars. Plans to retain the factory finally bit the dust when the site was sold to the Ministry of Health for a new public hospital. The popular local brands were to be produced by the Australian factories. I am told by a chocolate fancier that these products now taste different and are unpopular. The rest we know. Cadbury Dunedin closed in March 2018 after 150 years with the loss of over 350 jobs. The simpering Nigella Lawson has since plagued our screens, exhorting us to purchase her mates Andrew and Brian's alternative chocolate, Whitakers, which is made in Pororua. One has to wonder how long before their shareholders require a move offshore to advantaged locations where wages are cheaper. I am Anne Barrowclough, reporting for Heritage Matters. When the American corporation Mondelez closed Dunedin's Cadbury factory, the distress of the workers who lost their jobs lasted longer than just one day's headlines. Their pain has been captured by a local drama company called Talking House, which recorded interviews with some of the women who had worked there. Now here's part two of its production, which it called Bitter Sweet. The excerpts from workers' interviews are voiced by professional actresses. whiteboard which gave you an early target yeah, to so, see so how you're going. I used to write up how they'll go and and you know put a big smiley face if it was all good or put a We still had yeah. those to the end. Targets yeah. and target boards. Yeah. You didn't we? Yeah, yeah. I like yeah, yeah I like the idea of those. They were they were good. Yeah. yeah. But we laughed and fooled around and honestly I loved going to yeah. work. It was it was great. it was so cool. We had such such a good team and everyone was so good and, and we had so much fun, but we always produced. Like Jackie you know, used to say. I mean, we could horse around and at the end of the day, we thought, shit, we better pick up our game. Yeah. Cause, and it would still get done and we could still have a good time. You know, some places you go to, you can't look at the person next to can't them. Talk. You don't speak to them. You don't laugh. God forbid that you should sing along to the radio or laugh at something. Yeah. You know. Oh, we had the radios and everyone yeah. would be singing yeah. and dancing yeah. away. Someone would, would always do something completely stupid. Yeah, it was stupid. good because you did get your work done. Yeah, because I remember um, like when Liz was leading hand and we had the supervisor come and she used to say, I don't care how much talking you do as long as you do your work. Yeah. But we were proud. We took pride in our work. Yeah. Pride was mm. a big part of our job. Mm. 
We always like to put the best out and... Couldn't wait to get to work and see everyone and have another hilarious <laughs> night. Yeah. It was always so cool. There was Olympic Games on once and we had these big Olympic gold medals around our necks and all this kind of stuff. And, of course, here we are packing away, but we're dressing ourselves up at the same time. It was so cool because you could just have fun inside the place. Yeah. And they, they didn't care. As long as you got the work done, that that they didn't care. As long as you got the work done, you kept the quality high and people were safe at the end of the night. You know, it made the place so fantastic and it brought people together, that whole community connection, because it was fun and you'd wake up every day and you'd kind of like dream of going to work and like what, you know, what kind of fun you'd have on the production line. Back shift was was midnight to eight, 15 years on that. And we were just great. I don't know. It was something about them people. They, They were just all bubbly and happy and I mean, day shift and night shift obviously were too, but they just seemed not to look as excited about going to work as what maybe we did, maybe at midnight, I don't know what it was. Or maybe it's because some, the, some of the factory was shut down for our night, that back shift, and um, I don't know, maybe we just thought it was much management around, you know. So, yeah, the HR people were, were not around. So, yeah, you know. We only had our leading hands and our managers, really, and um, you didn't really see them very often, hardly. So you were, yeah, pr- pretty much unsupervised, but yeah, yeah, which made it really fun. Got up to all antics and that, but but still got our job jobs done at the same time as well. But the health and safety over the years just got really crazy, so a lot of that the fun times that we used to have stopped, you know, because like if it was someone's birthday, we'd throw them in the trolley or we'd wrap them up with all the foil wrap, you know, and spin them round and, you know, put them through the floors and down that, you know, happy birthday and, you know, and starch them with all the starch and we'd throw starch all over them. Oh, we couldn't get away with that, you know, by the time we finished. And and that was good fun, you know. It seemed harmless, but... But why were we working at the time, maybe, as some were trying to work? <laughs> in the old days, it felt like there was kind of uh, us and them between the the office, the office sort of, and the Cosmog Row. And maybe that was Cosmog Row was so far away from the actual factory. So there was Mogany Row, and they had so many floors. And I remember I had to go there, I don't even know what it was for one day, but I had to go up to like the third floor and I remember walking into this room and I was only a young girl then when I first started and there was like this room of all these people and these telephones and computers and I was like, what the hell is this? What the hell is this by the factory? And so apparently they had that's where their customer service centre was and stuff like that. But there were so many people in there. So that was the office space above the changing rooms and... um. And wages as well. So there was like a little window for wages. And in the old days, they used to go and collect their little envelopes with the money in them. Yeah. Just remember getting my very first pay packet from working, you know, in a proper factory and a proper job. Because prior to that, I'd worked in a milk bar in Moskill. And being just absolutely blown away when I got my first 40-hour week pay packet. $39.99. 
You're listening to part two of the drama Bittersweet on Heritage Matters. Bittersweet was created by the production company Talking House and is based on interviews done with the Cadbury workers who were laid off in March of 2018. The second floor had another part to it. It had Van Camp as well. And Van Camp was this, oh, they must have, I, you see, I'm too, still a bit too young. But apparently Van Camp was this amazing chocolate company that produced these beautiful, you know, look like real luxury little chocolates because I remember them doing the Kiwi selection. Uh, they had a ma- machine down there called KZ7, which was named after the boat, KZ7, yeah. Um, and she made, she was great, KZ7, really good plant. And it was like a mini microbook, basically. There was a machine in through Van Camp that was called KZ7. Seven, that's right. Still do, 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 there do, to do, the end. Do, 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 do. Yeah. yeah, that's all you heard all night. Do, 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 do. But yeah, Van Camp made these tiny little units. I remember they were like liqueur units and... Uh, one night, because uh, on the Mickey, like we'd have changeovers, and we used to wander a little bit, like on the fl- floor, you know, as <laughs> being curious. And uh, one of the girls, she went and found these units, and they had the liqueur in them. And of course, we weren't after them for the chocolate. <laughs> after them for the liqueur and so we were like sucking away on these like because we had we cherries in the middle so we were sucking away on these units <laughs> and um and then the leading hand found us and she was like right you girls go out there and put the molds on the mickey and it was like oh my god we were like <laughs> we were off our rockers but the job that sticks in my mind and that i'll never forget for all time was um, working on the Fredo Frog conveyor belt. And, um, uh, yep, we had a supervisor. Her name was Wynne. Can't remember her other name, but she was a very tall, angular woman with painted-on eyebrows and those glasses with the peaks on the side. And they used to wear um, tealy blue a polyester smock with a zip up the front, the wee collar, a little hat, sort of like the air hostess hat, and um, painted. She had painted fingernails, yep. She'd worked at Cadbury's for a long, long time, I would say probably all her life, took the job very seriously, and we were all a little bit scared of her. She was a little bit headmistressy. And so, anyway, we were there working away, and and this was, uh, I was at university at that stage, so 1970s, um, last year of uni, and we were working at Cadbury's, earning some money, and on the Fredo Frog conveyor belt. Um, (laughs) And the deal was, we would stand each side of the conveyor belt, the Fredo Frogs would come down the conveyor belt in, in rows, we would have little square boxes in front of us and little sheets of cardboard and you would count eight eight Fredo frogs onto the cardboard into the box and then another eight onto the cardboard into the box. Like that, four times, 32 frogs into the box. Then we'd send the box down the line, somebody else would put the lid on the box and pack them and into the carton they would go. Fredo frogs. Well, on this particular day the university results were out for our exams 
And in those days, you had to go to the archway, the university archway, to see the results and check them out. There was no such thing as texts or emails or anything like that. So somebody's brother, I believe, uh, can't quite remember, but somebody's brother went to the to the um, <clears throat> archway and checked out all our results because, of course, we were working, couldn't get away, and we were desperate to know what had happened. And then came came to the factory at the start of the lunchtime, the half-hour lunch break, and gave us our results. And with that, instead of going upstairs to the cafeteria for our half-hour lunch break, we went across the road to the Law Courts Hotel and had a, um, I think you call it a, a wet lunch. <laughs> At least one gin and tonic, possibly two, can't quite remember. But down the hatch at a great rate of knots and then back to work. Um, a tad late, I remember getting a bit of a frown from Wynne as we walked in and then over to our conveyor belt and away we went. Well, by the time the gin and tonics kicked in, we were past caring. We'd passed our exams. It actually didn't matter. Um, the frogs were coming down the conveyor belt. We had our cardboard, we had our boxes, but there was very little quality control about how many frogs were going into those boxes. And we were standing each other and laughing and giggling and carrying on. And, and we'd put the frogs onto the cardboard, into the box, and down the way it would go. And whoops, oh, we might have had another one there. And whoops, and there's another one in there. And the noise and the laughter and the looks coming across the factory floor from when it was kind of like, what can they do? They can only sack us and it doesn't matter. We've passed our exams. Oh, many's the time we go to the social club after work. So probably mm -hmm. about 20 to 1 in the morning God, by the time I we got, got changed hammered. and got down there. And we'd be absolutely rotten. We'd, we'd walk down the street on the way home. And many's the time that we'd end up at the Kensington. Kensington? Yeah. Didn't go that one. Didn't ya? Don't think so. Oh, and the birds would be twittering and the sun was coming up. At the end of Christmas time, the whole factory would come into the okay. to the cafeteria on the last day and they would have prizes. And everybody's number would be put in the bucket swirl around and, and if you were lucky enough, your number was pulled out, you'd get one of the prizes associated with it. Yeah, could have been, was, they had some good prizes. Could have been TVs, mountain, mountain bikes, bikes sleeping bags, cell phones. Yeah. What do you call those things? Drones? Yeah, yeah, they had drones. Pregnant baskets. So bottles of wine. Bottles of wine. Wonderful, wonderful things. First aid kits. Yeah, deep fryers. Could have been anything. But it was fun times. It was so much fun. It was a real family community. And we had, you know, they'd have like potluck teas up in the calf and stuff like that. And yeah, real culture. And like when new people started and they came onto your floor and when you went up to the cafeteria for smoker breaks, you like pull up a chair and say, hey, come sit at our table. Like everyone was welcome. Everyone felt like they belonged. And it was the, the first place you could go and work where you felt like you could just be yourself without being judged. It was such an amazing culture. Wally Walby, who employed me, the manager at the time, lovely guy. Honestly, he employed that many people and knew everybody's name. He'd be going, how are you going, Teresa? And I think, crikey, Dick, 
you know, he went through the last tour, actually. They they took him through the last tour. But he was just a lovely, lovely guy. The manager of the whole place knew everyone by name. And and he said when I went for my interview, so, da-da-da, which was a good family friend who got me my job. He said, so, you know, blah, blah. You know, he, he's he's recommended you for this job. So it was all through a friend how I got employed. It was like a family. It still is. I, I still keep in touch with lots, lots of guys from there. Um, a, a lot of guys got their job because they knew me or, you know, or because we knew, because we all, it's sort of, if they weren't family related, they were friends of family or people we knew. So it ended up being like everybody sort of knew everyone in and out of work, apart from when the seasonals come in, you know, especially on your own shift. The interviews with the Cadbury workers in Bittersweet were voiced by Cheryl Amos, Karen Elliott, Claire Adams and Jodie Bate. The director was Karen Elliott. Part three of Bittersweet will be played in our next programme. Travel by sea was a risky venture in the 19th century and our coastline is littered with shipwrecks from that period. The seaworthiness of some vessels has also raised serious questions, as I found out when I looked at the disaster involving a timber carrier called the Emily. The 729-ton Emily sailed from Bluff on the 26th of March, 1890, with a cargo of heavy 10-inch timber bulks for the Broken Hill Mines of Australia. The bark was under charter to Joseph Ward of Bluff, the Member of Parliament for Awarua. Sixteen years later, in a life of extraordinary trials, tribulations and triumphs, Ward would become Prime Minister after the death of Richard Seddon. Two weeks after the Emily set sail for Port Pirie, the Ketch Clyde brought a letter from a mutton birder of Big Island on the southwest coast of Stewart Island. The letter described a ship first seen drifting in bad weather with only a stump of a mast. The disabled ship had later driven ashore and had broken up. Joseph Ward asked the government to dispatch a vessel to investigate, and the Bluff Harbour Board's paddle steamer, Awarua, sailed to search for survivors. The Awarua returned next day with four men whom the mutton birders had rescued. They were all in a bad way their voyage a disaster. The day after the Emily left Bluff, the weather turned bad. The vessel began taking in water and developed a list. The pumps couldn't be used, and the Emily went right over on her broadside. In the next few terrible minutes, all but four of the crew were swept away. After some time, the Emily righted itself. The fore and main masts were gone, and only the stump of the mizzen remained. The survivors endured for several days without food or water, on the hulk barely afloat. They wrapped themselves in a sort of hammock strung with a sail until the Emily was driven ashore. The men were tumbled onto the rocks, and after a week without shelter, sustained only with shellfish, seal meat, blood and seaweed, bruised, exhausted, and in a most pitiable condition, they were rescued by the mutton bird party. A coroner's inquest was held on the 15th of April. The survivors, now numbering three, as John Brownrigg, the mate, had died of his injuries after being brought to hospital. The three were very critical of the Emily's condition, giving evidence that they considered the Emily unseaworthy, 
The hull was rotten, they suggested, the sails and rigging of poor quality. Before they sailed, complaints had been made even to the police, but nothing had been done. Joseph Ward was at the inquest, assuring the coroner that arrangements were being made for a full and exhaustive nautical inquiry. The loss of the Emily was national news. The deaths of nine seamen and the survivors' recounting of their harrowing experiences to the inquest prompted the Wellington Evening Post on the 21st of April to launch a coruscation of Victorian outrage. And here's a sampling, and I quote, As a rule, nautical inquiries are simply a farce, the paper railed. Had the Customs and Marine Department displayed due vigilance and done their duty, the Emily would have been unequivocally condemned as she lay at the Bluff Wharf. She was in every sense a coffin ship, a rotten hull, as one of the survivors described, held together by red paint. We all know that seamen are reckless, the editorial patronized. While a ship floats, they deem it a point of honor to stand by her. They think she'll last just one voyage more, and they chance it as well. She was timber-laden and therefore not likely to founder. The bolts were eaten with rust. Sometime before, in a dock at Williamston, Australia, there had been five feet of water in her hold. The editorial concluded that if it turns out nobody is to blame, that the law is defective, and that it's nobody's business to prevent death traps being sent to sea, and then the law must be amended without loss of time. Men must not be permitted for greed or gain to dispatch coffin ships with very little regard to whether they're likely to reach the end of their voyage or not. The promised nautical inquiry was held two days later. Joseph Ward gave evidence. He had not seen the Emily. He chartered the vessel while in Melbourne in January, the terms of charter assuring him the ship was tight, staunch, and strong. Significantly, Ward had been a long-term member of the Bluff Harbour Board and its chairman until two years before the tragedy. Bluff stevedores had completed the loading of the timber cargo, and one had told the inquiry he'd complained that the Emily's crew's loading of the first part of the timber cargo pressed against the hull, and could have burst it open. As to blame and any retribution, the nautical inquiry lacked teeth. His Honour C. E. Rawson, R.M., in his report noted, After the coroner's inquest it was discovered that I was informed that the vessel was a foreign ship, and therefore not subject for a formal investigation under the Shipping and Seamen's Act of 1877. However, Rawson deemed it in the public interest and for the sake of all the parties involved, the unofficial investigation be conducted. The Court of Inquiry found that the ship was lost because of the Emily's crew's faulty stowing of the first part of the timber cargo. And as to costs, an unofficial investigation meant no order would be made. The survivors could hardly have been appeased. Later, the owner of the Emily, a citizen of San Francisco, wrote to the newspaper detailing work carried out on the ship, including a survey of the previous year. The owner maintained that the vessel was in good condition, and criticism of its seaworthiness was unjustified. The late Alan de la Mer, in his Tales of Southland History, writes, In a forgotten corner of the Invercargill Cemetery stands a stone of Ruapuki granite, a permanent reminder of a tragedy at sea. The inscription reads, In memory of John Brownrigg, mate of the Bark Emily, who died in Southland Hospital on the 14th of April, 1890, and his shipmates. 
Below that inscription, the names of Brownrigg's eight shipmates are listed, drowned in the wreck of the vessel in Fervo Strait, 27th of March, 1890, erected by the citizens of Southland. And thanks to Papers Past and Alan de la Mer. This programme, which will be repeated on Sunday at 7pm, is kindly sponsored by Ryman Healthcare and brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust. Ryman Healthcare prides itself on offering some of the most resident-friendly terms in New Zealand. Ryman Healthcare's Francis Hodgkins and Yvette Williams Retirement Villages in Dunedin offer the very best of retirement living and care. For more information and to discuss your retirement living options, please phone Kate on 455-7936. Ryman Healthcare, supporting Southern Heritage Trust and the Heritage Matters Programme. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.